Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes or so, my guest today, Emily Isau and also Christoph Munger, they're both here with the big stories from the week, the weekend. Uh, Emily, what has caught your eye? Could it be from Finland or somewhere else this morning? We're going to Latin America because it's rare for me to be able to come to the program with good news from the world of mediation, but there was an agreement signed for Venezuela yesterday allowing Chevron to continue or restart its operations in Venezuela, so we'll talk about that. Very good. Also going to be heading to London to talk to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and we'll also be heading to the Balkans as well. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be jumping on board Slovenia's raft of referendums and looking at the lithium backlash in Serbia. Plus, we'll hear from Christoph Ament, the editorial director at Zeit magazine. It's the 27th of November, 2022. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a, a rather chilly autumnal, a little bit damp uh, Zurich this morning. Promises of sunshine, though, which is great. Lots of sunshine around the table this morning. I'm happy to say that uh, Emily Isahau is here, of course, regular voice program coordinator for peace mediation at ETH here in Zurich, and also Christoph Munger. And he's, of course, the head of the foreign desk at the Tagus Anzago. Good morning. Very nice to see you, Christoph. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning. Uh, listen, last week uh, there was much, uh, yeah, much of the program was devoted, of course, to the kickoff of the, the World Cup. Will we touch a little bit on uh, the World Cup today. You might have some themes uh, as well. Switzerland still sort of feeling generally uh, good uh, because the, because of their win. Uh, let's uh, let's see what happens uh, moving forward. But sort of mood here uh, in terms of a World Cup moment. If things sort of settled down after all of the start, because I would say once it gets underway, things will sort of drift into the background. A little Ho- bit. Hopefully, hopefully. But I I think we've gone through a Gianni Infantino week with the little sideshow called Football World Cup. And uh, this morning, uh, Sonntag Zeitung broke the story that another story uh, about Gianni Infantino, uh, the head of uh, FIFA, and actually he moved in June from the canton of Zurich uh, to the canton of Zug to, to save Texas. And uh, uh, he's about to, to get get four million Swiss francs, they, they say in the article, but the taxes now he could uh, half. So now uh, he only pays half of, of what he had to pay in the canton of Zurich. In Switzerland, you have to know uh, from canton to canton, you pay different taxes. Yes. And also I was going to say that this comes, you know, and it's the background as well of him also. Is he also living in Qatar now as well, moving his family there, but then also having the benefits of also a cantonal jump for taxes here yeah. at the same time? <laughs> he. he uh, uh, he's said to live in Qatar, and he also says in the article that, that he's about to, to move to the U.S. Uh, in, because the, the next World Cup will, will take place there. But uh, his, his regular stay is in Switzerland, and it used to be until June the canton of Zurich, but now he moved to the canton of Zug, which is very the next very close by, but uh, much less expensive than Zurich. Mm, uh, Emily, good morning to you. Uh, we, of course, heard from you at the top of the program. Uh, well, I guess two things. Uh, we don't want to sort of uh, disclose uh, your private travels, but school at least has sort of wrapped, right? You've sent sent the students packing in a, in a good way, of course, uh, and uh, ready to sort of kick off again in the new year. That's right. We spent three rather intensive weeks here looking at process design. We ma- did make it um, to the top of Pilatus, where we spent three days also um, kind of 
intensive uh, work days on top of a mountain uh, and now exactly they've all returned to their respective countries and will be coming back to Zurich in March of next year. So maybe just share with us because of course uh, mediation uh, and as you said I mean obviously sort of developing process uh, frameworks to come to agreement uh, is a big part of it. I'm sort of curious to know how many of your students sort of end up going down a, let's say, a, a private sector path, uh, which obviously might lead them to government affairs, etc. Yeah, within a traditional corporation versus going, getting a desk or, or somehow working for an NGO or for their home country in Geneva, New York, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so it varies, but I mean, our, our students, a continuing education program, a, a mid-career executive master's, if you will, in peace mediation, which means that most of our participants already come to the program with quite a few years under their belt, working in the UN, working in African Union or other institutions around the world or civil society. So more often than not, they go back into their organizations and continue working more closely on mediation uh, matters. But increasingly, of course, um, the private sector plays a a greater role in mediation as well. So even if they don't end up working for the private sector, I think they have a conscious mind in terms of kind of mobilizing the private sector towards peace. And this is actually a new trend in mediation research as well to see what role can the private sector play um, for the positive or for the negative on peace matters as well. I'm also happy to say that our mediator-in-chief, uh, Andrew Tuck, is also uh, in, in London uh, as well for us this morning. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Uh, good morning, Tyler. Um, I think my voice is a little bit better than yours, but you, you, you've, you've <laughs> had a much Only marginally, Andrew. <laughs> only marginally. <laughs> only marginally. Uh, tell me, uh, any, any sort of mediating uh, in, uh, in the sales aisles? Did you, did you sort of go out and embrace uh, Black Friday or, or the remnants of what have been, was there over the weekend? Or, or has it been sort of, yeah, more hunkered down? Because you know, there's, there's still a bit of work to do before we get to, uh, of course, the end of this year. Yeah, I'm afraid I didn't engage with anything to do with uh, Black Friday. Uh, but it has become a big thing here in, in the UK. And I think especially for online retailers, anything to try and get, get those retail sales up, as, as you say, as we head into Christmas. But for us, well, we can have our own retail sales because we have uh, the market coming up in Zurich, the Christmas market, and also here in, in London as well. So those two things are, are on the, the, the meet, the, the reader side. And then internally, we're, we're, we're still plowing through a lot of amazing projects. And we have a, a February issue to send to print and an Alpino newspaper going out the door in the next couple of weeks as well. And to talk, well, it certainly wasn't a sale, but the, the sales were, were very strong. Uh, you covered it uh, quite well in your column uh, yesterday. But take, take us back a few days. Take us back to uh, Lisbon, a very almost tropical, balmy evening, a little bit uh, damp. But it was, it was great to touch down in Lisbon, Portugal, a very important market for us. Uh, but I think we were quite surprised, not just by the turnout, but um, yeah, how, how, how deep the hands went into the, well, I was going to say, well, I'll leave it, I was hands in pockets, it's going to go wrong if I, if, I, uh, <laughs> if I go into some kind of metaphor. Anyway, uh, how was well, it? It was amazing. So I think you know, that Portugal has always been so key to us. And, and, and I, as I said on the night, I think it's also because it's, it's the same story in a way as Monaco. We start, you know, we had this, this same jolt from the economic crisis back in 2008. And as, as little plucky Portugal went back to onshoring, manufacturing, celebrating craft, those were all the things that we were doing as a, as a mini brand, you know, looking at Portugal. And so we, we've covered the Portugal story in depth from the beginning. And I remember very early on when we, we ran a story about, you know, Portugal's uh, 
depth of uh, manufacturing and how it still had this ability to make shirts and shoes and and technology as well often the, the, the scanner you go through at the the airport and you show your passport is made in portugal and we said look here's a, a country that's got everything it needs and i remember then portuguese people saying look that's the first positive thing that's been written about us for for months and months and months and i think also that willingness to see that not only the problems but the solutions in in portugal made us a, a successful brand there so as we said, we took, we took boxes and boxes of books. We sold every single book. I think uh, you, you and me signed er just about every single one as well. We got to meet amazing people. And I think there's also this thing about Portuguese people, which is, you know, that because in the past the economy has not been great, not just recently, but across decades, Portuguese people have, have, are used to going out in the world and often to the UK and to places where they've had to learn English. So everybody is fluent in English, so reads a magazine in English, and they have this entrepreneurial flair. Everybody's got a side hustle or is running their own company. It was, it was really, uh, as I said, a real jolt to the spirits to, to be there. And we'll come back to uh, what is, of course, on the horizon uh, for, for the coming weeks in terms of, of course, getting out there and uh, doing good old Christmas markets and retail, uh, but also what that means for bringing our, our audience together. I just want to, of course, bring in uh, Emily and, and, and Christoph as well. So we were just talking about the top as to as to whether or not, you know, the, the story and maybe, of course, all of the, the issues that have been raised around the World Cup. Andrew, there's a story this morning um, in the Sunday Times um, headline is, you know, forget virtue signaling, this World Cup is a magnet for deals in the desert. And I think this is interesting because, of course, you know, on one side, you have uh, lots of corporations. We have a story of, uh, this weekend, of course, in the Financial Times, you're talking about Qatar because of uh, transport for London, uh, you know, certainly sort of, you know, reviewing uh, the advertising that is there. Qatar is saying that they're also going to think about their investments and, and how they're, they're, of course, deploying their money. But the, the story says, you know, politicians, royalty, even Ivanka Trump, are enjoying lavish hospitality in Qatar. It all adds, uh, it, it all adds up to a great uh, home win for for the Gulf state. So interesting how the narrative has also changed over over six days. But Andrew, I'll start with you. Uh, do we sort of forget that this is also the land of deal making as well? Completely, and and it is interesting how you know the, the football's in the foreground, but it seems that everybody is using this as a moment to. <laughs> conclude deals that have probably been in negotiation for months and, and, and years. And we have to remember that the, the amount of, of sovereign wealth that the Qataris have shapes many of our capital cities and many of our industries around the world. So it's here in, in, in London, they, they are big property owners, big investors. Uh, so I, I, I know that they, they are peeved at this um, uh, problem with London Underground, which has said that some of their ads don't meet their LGBT requirements. But I don't think I, you, you would imagine the Qataris pulling out over such a simple thing. Um, Christoph, there was a, a big story uh, also in uh, the, the NZZ as well, a Qatari story, but also yeah, the importance that the Qataris uh, have played, continue to play in Zurich, Switzerland, also big hotel owners, uh, also occupiers of many hotel beds as well, and, ho and not to mention hospital beds uh, too. So it's interesting, again, how fast the story has moved over the last six, seven days uh, that we've gone from, this is a total brand disaster for, the, for Qatar, why did they ever take this on to... Actually, maybe they, they actually come out of this all right in the end. People may be more aware, 
of the questionable policies of Qatar, but yeah, how damaging is it in the end? Maybe not too damaging. I mean, people uh, tend to forget very quickly, and uh, of course, uh, they are much involved in in Swiss uh, economy, in particular talking about banks. They have lots, a uh, lot of money in there. And on the other hand, it's also interesting to see. I mean, these little countries in between the the big, big uh, Sunni center, which is Saudi Arabia, on the one hand. On the other hand. Uh, we have the big Shia center, the uh, Iran. Both uh, have a very bad uh, uh, reputation, Iran in particular at the moment. However, I think maybe <laughs> that's also a chance they they, they can, you, you might uh, know better, Emily, uh, they, they can also some sort uh, of starting mediation, maybe one day, but maybe people get more aware of that fact. I don't know uh, where it will end, but I'm I'm quite sure that Qatar uh, will be a big winner of this World Cup. Emily, just your point of view as well. I think just going back to this, of course, role that Qatar has been playing from, uh, yeah, both, I would say, you know, curtains wide open, front stage mediation. Mm. And then also we know um, a lot of things happening in a much more back channel manner as well, not to mention, of course, maybe some questionable support for uh, some regimes at the same time. Uh, But looking at from a diplomatic perspective, how do you observe it? No, it's interesting. And also from a a Finnish perspective, this has been at the top of the news for the past few weeks, also in Finland, but actually, and there's been a lot of criticism, of course, the lack of human rights and and, and respect for them. But at the same time, uh, Finnair, for instance, the national flag carrier, announced its biggest partnership just a few months ago with Qatar Airways. And even our foreign minister, Pekka Havisto, from the Green Party himself, he mentioned that Qatar plays a role in the mediation world, hosting the talks um, for Afghanistan, uh, for instance. So because of their geopolitical strategic um, standpoint in the world, um, there is a prioritization taking place. So even from a Finnish perspective, they nowadays say we do always raise um, the issue of human rights in private meetings with Qatari officials. But at the same time, we need to find ways to engage in trade, but also politically coordinate with them. Mm. Christopher. And then, of course, uh, even the, the the guest question. I mean, the mm. the green uh, the green mini, uh, minister from Germany, Habeck, uh, minister of economics, uh, went to Qatar to 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 make a deal uh, regarding gas because the Russian gas is not coming anymore. So, uh, I, I think they are quite in a good position at the moment. <laughs> Andrew, just uh, maybe to pick up. Uh, the World Cup often sort of provides us with a, with a bit of a, a, a pause period uh, as well, because yeah, you have most uh, major you know, news brands devoting so much time for it, you know, setting up dedicated sites. So it also gives, it sort of presents a bit of a political holiday for some as well. Is there a reset moment? Because it's just interesting. It feels like we've been through a week in the UK news where, where nothing nothing has happened, and maybe that's a bit of a bit of good news. Is there a sense that maybe things under Rishi Sunak are at least sort of finding the gears that they need uh, right now. Of course, we had the Scotland issue, uh, but in, in a way that's almost sort of a little bit died down. There's not going to be a referendum, at least uh, for the foreseeable future. But uh, what's, your, what's your read when you peer out the window and, uh, and uh, of course, navigate the streets? Well, I think after Liz Truss and after Boris, Rishi Sunak is providing a very managerial, slightly boring maybe, way of governing the country. And it's probably what everybody needed, you would imagine. 
But the worrying thing for him is, you know, there's a poll out this morning saying that only 7% of the British population think that the Tories are competent and capable. And we're on 20 issues that they asked uh, quite a large poll of people about their, their views on everything from the economy to the healthcare. On, on nearly every single marker, Labour far outpaced the Tories. So just, I think people are just exhausted. And I think the government is exhausted as well. So they're, they're not managing to get big ideas passed and they're, they're, they're doing a good job at managing the economy. But the things that are, are blowing, to use a metaphor, up, up are uh, there's a debate about whether we should have onshore wind farms that potentially could d deliver a defeat to Rishi Sunak's government because many of his ministers actually want to press ahead with it. There's a, a, dis a story this morning that actually a trade deal that we, we struck with Japan uh, and was much you know, much fanfare was put around this how great it was going to be has actually seen trade with Japan decline so it's it's all very managerial stuff in the news for for for, for Sunak but you're right he, he's probably uh, enjoying the football himself. And at the top of the show, uh, Emily, you uh, were, of course, uh, signaling a story out of out of uh, Venezuela and uh, certainly uh, an agreement that we've seen has, has been reached there vis-a-vis uh, -vis also Chevron and, and uh, all of their activities. But just before we, we head uh, to Caracas, Andrew, it was interesting, wasn't it, uh, just being in, in Lisbon? I, I don't know, maybe it was just sort of the, as I said, the tropical evening or something, but you felt just the energy of Brazil uh, across the day. I had one or two meetings and you just felt maybe for, not the first time, of course, we know that Brazilians have been, in, of course, investing heavily in Portugal. Uh, we've seen a lot of Brazilians, of course, moving to Portugal for security reasons. But maybe off the back of this election, and I think a lot of people are saying, you know, what is this going to mean, obviously, from a tax point of view in Brazil? Uh, you know, what will, you know, Lula being back, uh, what, how is this going to play out? But there certainly seemed to be, it just felt a little bit like Brazil is back and or maybe just because we wanted to jump on the tap flight to Sao Paulo I don't know <laughs> I, I think everyone was being very positive about uh, Brazil as a brand again uh, as you say that there are structural things and tax reasons and security issues which have have encouraged many Brazilians to set up shop in, in Lisbon and to use that as their base but I think it was also fascinating, Tyler, just, you know, we went out for dinner later on and people we spoke to, it was interesting how the the Lucifer world uh, s goes through people's blood. You know, that we, we met people, uh, my mum was from Sao Tome. So this connection to all of the, 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 the Lucifer nations or, you know, my family have been working in Angola. We, 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 we have a, an office uh, in Luanda. All those things, it's, it's, it's fascinating how that Lucifer world comes to uh, Lisbon and and mixes there in a, in a much more interesting uh, way than it perhaps here in the UK where everybody's on their edge about uh, you know, colonial rule and and what the colonies mean. Whereas for, for Portugal, it's often seen that some of their, their their colonies are outpacing them. So they there's a much more meeting of people on a on a level playing field. Absolutely. Um, maybe just to tell us um, what uh, what's been transpiring uh, in in Venezuela, what this means, because it's also. Well, I'll leave, you, I'll leave you to start and set it up for us. Mm. Uh, but also, so many questions raised in the background in terms of what this deal is. No, absolutely. And it relates to Ukraine. It relates to global oil markets, etc. So absolutely. Um, so yesterday, actually, the first day of um, the talks in Mexico, hosted by Mexico, but facilitated by Norway, um, between the government of
of Nicolas Maduro and the Venezuelan opposition reached a deal, a confidence-building uh, measure, if you will, on um, humanitarian um, aid. And essentially, they compose uh, consists of two things. One, um, around 3 billion euros worth of um, Venezuelan assets frozen in American banks and other financial institutions around the world will be unfrozen and directed to a UN-controlled fund that can be then used in Venezuela um, for educational projects, for infrastructure projects, um, and, and, and to do good things on the ground. But at the same time, the Biden administration will loosen some of the sanctions on Venezuela, namely um, oil production uh, in Venezuela, allowing Chevron to recontinue some of its earlier um, production or uh, work in Venezuela and import um, some of the Venezuelan oil um, to the United States. So again, it's the start of political dialogue, um, but it is, it is a very important practical confidence building measure to start the talks with. And, and in the background, then uh, how much discussion on one side, because you, know, it, it, you almost you can't sort of hide hide from it. So you have you know, also Chevron often seen, of course, as the big polluting, extracting bully, uh, but then also winning something out of this as well. This is just pragmatic diplomacy. This is something that has to, to happen because obviously how does the place, you know, how does Venezuela sort of pull itself up? Um, it has many resources, but maybe sort of, maybe not so many uh, that are in a way there for the taking and, you know, I mean, exploitation, but exploitation maybe in a positive way as well. No, absolutely. And I think we shouldn't be too naive think that they're always behind reasons behind everything. I think the stars in a very unfortunate way are aligning well for the process to have uh, kicked off in this way. So the humanitarian, financial, social situation on the ground in Venezuela, extremely dire. So there's a strong incentive to release some of those funds. At the same time, on the US side, that's controlling a lot of the assets and during the Trump administration gave the opposition leader access to the controlled assets or frozen assets, has an incentive to bring Venezuela back into the global oil market. So again, it's an aligning of many of, of the stars, globally speaking, um, and, and, and hopefully it can pave the way. Um, elections are meant to take place in Venezuela in 2024. The political prisoners, um, press freedom is not respected. So a lot of things need to take place between now and then. Um, but it is a good start. Christopher, I just want to, of course, maybe swing the spotlight uh, direction, Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, I think interesting stories whether it's in Germany, Switzerland, uh, and certainly you know, other other countries across Europe, in terms of maybe this the, the feeling uh, of yeah, and 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 certainly people's sympathy to the war effort right now uh, in, in and around the Ukraine, what that means for also refugees, uh, many many sort of stories that we've seen over the past few months about okay, um, uh, have the refugees sort of overstayed their welcome now? We, if, if they're going to remain, then what are going to be the government policies uh, of, of course, to, to ensure better cohesion, et cetera, et cetera? What's the feeling uh, maybe on the ground here? I think, uh, like everywhere in the West, the people are getting tired a little bit of this war. And uh, there was a poll last uh, last week in, in, in Switzerland, and they say 64% uh, of Swiss people say that neutrality, strict neutrality between Russia and Ukraine uh, is the most important thing. I mean, at the beginning of the war, it was only 57%. So uh, this is increasing, and uh, maybe... Um, uh, another figure, uh, the, the support for Ukraine because of the aggression of Russia was at the beginning by 65% in Switzerland. It has come down to 54%. So uh, that, 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 that shows us a bit that 
it's not just it's not already turning the tide but uh, it's going in this direction uh, we, we the, the skepticism towards uh, to, to, towards uh, ukraine is increasing and uh, uh, they say of course neutrality is the most important thing uh, regarding the refugees uh, there is still a lot of sympathy but uh, it depends on where you stay politically in switzerland and the on, the, on there are 30 percent uh, who say in switzerland that they should stop uh, letting them in uh, that's of course exactly based the base uh, of the very right-wing party the svp yeah. indeed andrew just before we go uh, i guess maybe one of the stories that is dominating a lot of the front pages uh, of course is the ongoing uh migration issue and certainly as this applies to to the channel um but just picking up on where christopher was you know again this has been a bit of a theme and, and topic and you've commented on it that of course when you're in munich uh you know, when you when you're just a little bit further east in europe there you, you really feel it i mean you you still see welcome reception signs uh, etc of course not the way uh, it was uh, 10 10 months ago uh, but the mood in the uk uh in in that respect or, or much more sort of focused on yeah what is now sort of bubbling up as another eastern issue which is an albanian issue in the uk yeah i don't think there's any discussion of the the the, the ukrainian uh migration issue here of, of people coming here as refugees as people coming here to shelter while the war is on i think there's still uh, empathy for those people but it's not just not touching the newspapers i haven't seen a column inch about it for for days but the albanian issue is one which which perplexes people we have hundreds and hundreds of single young men coming here most seem to be economic migrants but there is no path for them to apply legally to come here so it's it's it, it forces them also through this this path whereas in germany you know, whether it's the right way or not they do have a legal process so albanians working in germany have their papers they've, they've applied for working permits and if they haven't got them they haven't been able to come so I think we here we have a, a, a real problem, and we have Suara Brahman, the, the Home Secretary, was 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 quizzed about it this week, and at one point she kind of gave in answering questions during a, a parliamentary committee, and she said, uh, "Do any of my colleagues have anything to say here?" Because she just didn't have the answers. So uh, there's no quick solution coming down the line for that. And you just said at the top uh, as as well that uh, of course uh, a week from now uh, we will be. Uh, in full Christmas market mode uh, here in Zurich. Uh, our Georgina Godwin is going to be uh, co-anchoring uh, this program uh, out of Zurich uh, next week. We'll also be here with radio uh, on, uh, of course, on a Saturday as well. Then the next week we're, we're in London. Andrew, give us your top three not picks, but uh, I think there's always this point of excitement around uh, the Christmas market. It's uh, we've been doing it for over uh, a decade as uh, as a business. Uh, what do you look forward to? Uh, I look forward to seeing uh, our lovely mascot Monochan waddling around our owl mascot, and uh, who many children but, think is a penguin, and I always sort of think like maybe we should yeah. have a book to say there's a bit of a difference between an, a, a penguin and an owl. But anyway, very black and white, but uh, de definitely an owl. Um, I, I always in, enjoy uh, getting, getting some glue, glue vine, and some uh, some uh, snacks from our cafe team. It's it's just a good place to hang out. 
and the reindeer. We have real reindeer and Santa Claus. What more could you? And you see the kids' faces light up. So it, it's an amazing. Actually, you see everyone's face light up when they see Santa. Um, and we've had some inappropriate people sitting on his lap in years past. So we'll see what happens this year. Exactly. We've got uh, some nice Artex stools uh, around around Santa now. <laughs> Andrew Tucker, wishing you a very good uh, Sunday. Our Emma Nelson is in London with the news headlines. Thank you very much, Tyler. Thousands of people have taken to the streets of Shanghai in China to protest against COVID restrictions. It follows the deaths of 10 people in a fire in an apartment block. Attention's turning to Taiwan's next presidential election after the ruling Democratic Progressive Party was beaten at local elections on Saturday. President Tsai Ing-wen has resigned as the party's chairwoman after the defeat. A rescue operation is continuing after mudslides swept away the homes on the island of Ischia near Naples. It's understood at least one woman has died and several others are missing. The secrets of successful former dinner parties have been revealed in a new book by one of France's most revered events organisers. In Mistress of Ceremonies, Françoise Dumas advises that the menu should be sober. Offal, venison, stews are all off the menu, as is anything that could soil the guests. And a loose goat that has been on the run for nearly two weeks in Nebraska has appeared to make fun of animal welfare patrollers trying to catch it. Officers have reported the animal prancing away from them, taunting them from unreachable spots. One even described the animal as looking smug. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thanks very much, uh, Emma. Okay, we have to go back to uh, Francois Dumas' uh, book. So uh, y- your thoughts on it, because it's, it all seems rather... Rather limiting. I mean, I think people do want guardrails and they want rules, and this is why these types of, of etiquette books uh, do do incredibly well. But if I suddenly sort of think about a world of French cuisine with, yeah, I mean, without sauces, and I think about a good bourguignon and and many other things. Uh, not not to mention, I'm not sure what she means at the top. She, she used the word sober, or no? What, sober, what was... sober and easy to understand, and I don't. That doesn't necessarily set the the. It doesn't set the tone in the way that I would sort of hope a party to go. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, Madame Dumas is, is look, I've, I haven't even, I failed before I've even started because my go-to is usually, like you say, a bourguignon and it's definitely venison as well. Um, I do very much hope that I don't soil or inconvenience my guests, though. That's something that I think that I can agree with Madame Dumas on. No, that's 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 absolutely um, fine. Do we know? Is this uh, in circulation in English yet, or maybe you can? Oh, do you know that's going to be my job for the day to try and find Madame? D- if if not, I'll try and do a bit of translating. I'll try and grab hold of a copy and do some and do a bit of work for you. If that is something that we aspire to, I'm not quite sure. Well, I, I just Emily was uh, you were sort of uh, well maybe frowning a little bit or at least raising one eyebrow uh, when she she said she's she's very sort of you know well it sounded like poultry is sort of like you know the the mediating dish everyone can sort of agree uh, on a on a side of chicken uh, you know potentially as a as a as a crowd pleaser. Yeah, that, that, I have to say that was a surprise. But then reflecting on it over the past few minutes, I realized that there is one case when that actually was the case. Um, we were hosting two delegations, opposing delegations in Porvo, um, uh, not too far from Helsinki in Finland. And we went for a lovely dinner that was meant to be a bit of an icebreaker, bringing the two delegations together after tough talks. And we didn't realize that it was a very fine dining restaurant. So we ended up having 10 courses. And these were delegations from countries that were expecting rather heavy meals so they we got a shot glass of a broth and then something very small next and it became a laughing thing that like oh what will be next and then they saw pigeon 
on the menu, I think four or five courses in. And then they thought, okay, now we get the real food. But then it was a tiny, tiny piece. It was a thimble. It was a thimble. Exactly. A thimble full of uh, but it ended up being perfect icebreaker, kind of a trust building thing. And then on the way back to the hotel, we did pass by McDonald's. Uh, okay, I was going to say, or, or there had to be also lots of shot glasses with, uh, with other fine finished spirits in potentially. Uh, a little bit, yes. And some, uh, some beer as well, yeah. Emma, we're going to come back to the end of the program. I'm giving you the same assignment as Andrew, that you, we have to give us your, your top three, of course, uh, for Christmas markets uh, as, as well. Um, so at least our Christmas market, that is. So we'll, uh, we'll come back to you a little bit uh, later in the program. Is that a deal? No problem at all, Tyler. I'll be standing by. Very good. Uh, speaking of standing by, we're heading uh, to Ljubljana now uh, to speak to our correspondent in the Balkans. Uh, Guy Delaunay uh, is there for us this morning. Good morning, Guy. Morning, Tyler, and morning all. So uh, tell us, uh, mood uh, on the streets of, uh, of the Slovenian uh, capital, uh, Christmas firmly under underway already? It is. It's highly convivial, Tyler. I was out in the city centre yesterday and we do have our Christmas market and we do have all our Christmas lights, which is a beautiful display, uh, which changes slightly every year. It's based on you know, various sort of nebulous concepts about the universe, about the body. You actually have little little sperm swimming in midair above some of the streets of old Ljubljana town uh, with a little ovum in the middle of all of that, uh, which of course looks a little bit like planets and shooting stars as well, uh, which is how I think they get away with it year after year. Almost Maybe they're just a bit more frank in Ljubljana than they would be in London. This is a a recent uh, innovation, Uh, one of (laughs) a recent uh, mayoral administration decided this was a good idea. Well, no, actually, it goes back a a couple of decades. It's now being looked after by the son of the father who originally created this installation. And the idea is that, like a living organism, it evolves every year. So it changes slightly. Bits and details have been added. Other details are not there uh, this year. I won't go into those details in too much depth. But the interesting thing is, of course, that the light show itself uh, was a matter of some political debate and and even an electoral issue, because we had our local elections here last weekend. And uh, Mayor Zoran Jankovic was going for re-election. He's been the mayor since 2006. And one of the ways in which the opposition was trying to get at him was by saying, look, there's a crisis on, an energy crisis. We really shouldn't be having the, the Christmas illuminations in Ljubljana this year. It's a terrible waste of money. It's sending completely the wrong message, to which Zoran Jankovic turned around and said, uh, nuts, it only costs about €3,000 because these are all LED lights, and uh, everybody could do with a bit of cheer. And uh, judging by the, the crowds on the streets yesterday, I think uh, people voted with the, their ballots last weekend and voted with their feet this weekend. And how much of this been, has this been an issue in terms of, of course, yeah, maybe national programs, policies, et cetera, reminding people to, to go easy on energy? Of course, we've seen a lot of that uh, here uh, in Switzerland. Uh, maybe we'll come, we'll come maybe bring uh, Christoph in on this issue as well, because uh, I think it's sort of sort of blown up in the face of the administration, certainly of the government here, maybe, you know, enough sort of nannying, et cetera. Um, so I think that has been, uh, is, has, has certainly been a topic. But if we, if we had to sort of look maybe within the borders of Slovenia, and and elsewhere in the region, uh, how are uh, how, how are governments telling people to uh, to go easy on lighting and uh, and, well, and their appliances? I think everybody is is being encouraged to go easy. The interesting thing, though, is that uh, in Slovenia, the last time I looked at any statistics, which was a couple of weeks ago, electricity prices here were actually cheaper than they were this time last year, uh, which is quite astonishing. And that reflects the fact that in Slovenia, as in many other countries in the region, the energy utilities are 
controlled by the state one way or another. So Slovenia is introducing a windfall tax on energy companies, those which generate energy within Slovenia, whether that's electricity or oil refineries. Uh, But the fact is, these are all companies which have a very strong state interest. So, you know, the money is going into the state coffers, but they were state-owned companies in the first place. So there's a, a lot more control than there is in places like the UK, where the market's highly deregulated and uh, the consumers have been suffering as a result. Uh, Christoph, I just want to bring you in because uh, the Federal Council in Switzerland uh, had a, a series of different degrees of what might happen in terms of if they yeah, have to get a little bit heavy on the population in terms of making yeah, recommendations. Uh, and, and of course, we saw uh, yeah, many media outlets uh, and of course, uh, people across the political divide saying, OK, are you just sort of missing the measures uh, of the last few years? And now you want to apply new measures to people and, and uh, many sort of felt this is overreach, you know, in the same sort of sense that yeah, I mean, Switzerland sort of did okay, you know, in COVID times because there was this, yeah, this respect, uh, of course, for common sense. Uh, and here we've had something else again where people are a little bit scratching their heads saying, you know, do you really sort of need to tell me about when, how I can stream my programs or dry my clothes? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's it's the same, the same with, 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 like during the pandemic. And people can uh, can say, now this is not over the top, uh, this is okay, uh, they can decide on their own. And I think that the sense of urgency, of uh, the sense of crisis has diminished already. I mean, it's, it's coming down and uh, of course people are not are more aware of everything and uh, they they do save some energy I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure I do it my on my own <laughs> at home but um, the, this, the, if the, the, the government should for example come and say you are not allowed to to stream Netflix anymore that doesn't work in Switzerland no um, guy just uh, tell me um, and maybe this is a bit of a jump because it's interesting you, you've got a headline here about Slovenia's referendum madness mm. and sometimes you think that that this is referendum madness is sort of owned by Switzerland Switzerland. Uh, but what's uh, what's coming up? And I guess uh, people are out to vote today. People are out to vote today in not one, not two, but three referendums. And these have been called by the opposition party, the SDS, which was until April the party of government. And they, they, the, the topics on which they've called these referendums or the, the legislation on which they've called these, called these referendums are long-term care uh, for the elderly, the structure of the government, and the governance of the public broadcaster, RTV Slovenia. And this was all legislation which was introduced by the new government of Prime Minister Robert Golob when uh, when he entered power and was trying to, in essence, depoliticize RTV Slovenia, get long-term care on a sound footing and add three government ministries in part uh, to help with what's going to be happening with Ljubljana, with Slovenia in the coming years, which is its population is going to be older and its uh, young people are going to be struggling to buy houses. So there was going to be a Ministry of Solidarity Future, uh, which is a very clumsy translation, but that's what it says in, in, in Slovenian. Um, but the issue here is it's not just that we've got this plethora of referendums, uh, but that we've actually we've been going to the polls. I mean, this will be my fourth time at a polling station in the past month. And there's another election next week, the second round of the local election. So we've had two rounds of the presidential, one round of the local, these referendums, and the second round of the local elections. Five referendums, uh, sorry, five elections in the space of six weeks. 
So just tell us, uh, if we went to a flip on, uh, you know, to have a cozy Sunday evening of watching uh, RTV Slovenia, <laughs> much, much loved public broadcaster, trusted outlet uh, as, as the source to go to for, for breaking news. What is the, the relationship with, with RTV? Well, RTV is a trusted public broadcaster. It's interesting when you look at the statistics. It's not quite at the levels of the BBC, which gets, as I recall, about 85% of the public saying that they trust it, uh, which is you know, not what you'd get if you listen to certain stripes of politician in the UK. Um, but in Slovenia, it's, it's a firm majority. It's something like 70% of people uh, place their trust in RTV Slovenia and believe that it's important. Uh, you've got programmes like Odmevi, which is the, the main sort of evening news discussion programme, which is right on at prime time and goes in depth into issues. And it's a, it's a very strong programme. And I suppose I would say that because I've appeared on it a couple of times myself. Uh, but right now, of course, everybody's watching the World Cup on RTV Slovenia, which is another kind of public service. Just uh, maybe remind our listeners, uh, has Slovenia said, are they, are they opting in for Eurovision this year? Because, of course, we've seen some countries uh, fall off the lineup uh, because of, yeah. of the costs of going to... I thought Liverpool was quite expensive. And I mean, we know it's not just about room nights in Liverpool. Of course, it's the whole production and having mm. to run the contest, etc., to, to make it happen. But uh, I, I think everyone's wondering, will Slovenia show up this year? <laughs> Well, Montenegro and North Macedonia are not, so there are two other countries on my patch. Uh, Slovenia, as far as I'm aware, is still going. I haven't heard anything about them uh, pulling out. They, they got knocked out in the semi-finals again this year because uh, they made the wrong choice. They had they had a, a potential top fiver uh, this year in an act called Luna, who were this really terrific uh, male-female synth-pop duo with a very dramatic performance, and instead they actually went for a, a high school band called Last Pizza Slice. Uh, which was, was very cute, but it was a catastrophic choice in the end, Tyler. Uh, I think we have some late breaking news because Emily wants to jump in because he, he, has, he has a quick Eurovision story for us. Emily, tell no, us. No, I mean, uh, the rules were changed quite drastically this week for the upcoming Eurovision um, Song Contest in terms of voting. Um, so, And Monocle has a global audience, so great news. The world will get to vote for the first time um, this year. So in the past, it's only been the participating countries and their um, people uh, in Europe who get to vote. But this uh, time around, the voting system has been changed. And the world gets to vote as any other European nation and their votes will be tallied together and they'll be weighing um, equally um, as to a normal one nation. So the rest of the world gets kind of one country's uh, votes, um, but they still get to vote this time around. I mean, I think this is going to be interesting. Uh, happy to bring everyone in. Emma, join in if you want as well, because we, we of course, we know what happens uh, certainly within immediate neighborhoods. And, you know, we know how, I mean, we know how all of your neighborhood is going to vote and you'll probably, you know, if the Estonian Act is reasonably good, then they'll do well by Finland and, and, and Sweden and elsewhere as well. And, and guys, certainly we know what happens mm. uh, in, in the Balkans uh, uh, as well. But you can, as Andrew was talking earlier about the Lucifone world, you know, for example, so what this will mean for, for Portugal um, and, uh, and, and how it can sort of, will be able to rely on the Mozambique, the Mozambique vote and the, the Angola vote or the Brazil vote. Yeah, or Spain uh, with the entire Latin America potentially voting for them. Unfortunately, there isn't such a great big Finnish diaspora out in the world. Um, so Finland probably will not benefit from this change in rules, uh, but perhaps countries like Portugal and Spain will. Emma, uh, any, any, any thoughts, thoughts on this in the, in the Nelson household? Also, by the way, is part of your household going to be involved in this uh, 
large jamboree that uh, will, of course, be descending on uh, on Liverpool? Um, well, I mean, it, it is an unusual thing that I know friends who sort of been approached to to sort of rent out their houses to live to, to visitors from Liverpool, which is to Liverpool, which is quite astonishing. Uh, when we had the Eurovision Song Contest last time, we all caught COVID, so uh, that's how we felt about, about having Eurovision mm. again. I don't know if the British have that kind of territorial allegiance that that other countries do. Yes, I suspect that there's a little bit of sniping towards French, France and Germany. But in terms of that, I think we're all just daft enough to go for the best tune. Yeah, well, well hopefully, but it will be sort of, it'll be, will be sort of fascinating, yeah, to, to watch how this uh, plays out. And, and it means for Switzerland, it's even more difficult. Switzerland, yeah, yeah. Well, this is, I mean, yes, this is when, yeah, you can sort of... Uh, <laughs> no sort, chance for Switzerland. No, I mean, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to see, yeah, uh, how this will play out uh, across, uh, yeah, I mean, former former empires, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, we'll come back into vogue, certainly, for uh, uh, the, the means of, of Eurovision. Uh, Guy, just uh, before we go... Uh, uh, very quickly, um, just uh, maybe crossing the border to Serbia uh, mm. and obviously uh, protests that we've uh, seen uh, there, certainly regarding the lithium issue. Yep, they're out again. The environmental protesters are protesting against lithium mining. And this is a subject that people may have thought had gone away because earlier this year, the government revoked the lithium mining permits of the mining giant Rio Tinto. That was after weeks of an enormous protest by Serbia's standards, which pulled in people from all sorts of different walks of life. And that's why the government took fright, because it was an election year. Now the environmentalists are saying it was a pre-election lie to revoke these uh, Rio Tinto. Tinto's permits, that it was, you know, all a bit of a performance, and that behind the scenes preparations for lithium mining have been uh, ploughing on. And of course, they're trying to work to uh, bring attention to this issue again. Guy Delaney, uh, our correspondent uh, covering the Balkans for us in Ljubljana this morning. Thanks very much for that. It's just gone 10.48 here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break. When we come back, off to Berlin to speak to Christoph Ament. What can you learn in a minute? More than you think if you subscribe to Monocle's daily email newsletter. The Monocle Minute provides fresh analysis of breaking news and direct-to-your-inbox insights on everything from global affairs to entrepreneurship. On Saturdays with the weekend edition, we'll widen your horizons with wry observation, drinking and dining recommendations and must-know openings, plus Tyler Brule's worldly weekly column too. Subscribe now at monocle.com minute. You're back with Monocle on Sunday Live from Zurich uh, with me, Tyler Brule. Uh, as I said, going into the break, we are heading now to the German capital to speak to the editorial director of Zeit magazine. Christoph Amend is there for us. Guten Morgen, Christoph. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, uh, everyone. I was just hoping you wouldn't ask me about the traditionally bad results of Germany and the German contestants in Eurovision. So... Um, I was just hoping we could skip, skip that. For okay, well, we, we, will, we will indeed move swiftly <laughs> on. And, and I, I have to say, you know, Germany has had some you know, decent songs over sort of the last you know, five or six years. And I, I, I think it's actually sometimes quite, just quite mean that uh, they, they just, you don't get a look in. But let's move on. Uh, hopefully the sun is, uh, is shining in Berlin. Maybe not at this time of, time well, of it, year. It actually is. I mean, Berlin keeps surprising uh, all the Berliners this year. I mean, we have a lovely winter sunny uh, first advent uh, a sunday so it's it's uh, i'm sorry to say but we really have a uh, nice weather today 
Excellent. Well, uh, just to tell us, maybe uh, I always want to do a little bit of a, of a review because I, I'm, I'm very happy to say that uh, Zeit Magazine, uh, your big international edition, uh, and uh, for listeners, of course, who who are familiar with it, this is where you take, of course, uh, a year or even a one year plus of all of the stories that appear in German uh, in, in the regular weekly supplement, and then they're bundled together in a much more, I would say, uh, yeah, confident uh, format, uh, large scale, uh, and everything is translated, and it's beautiful, and it's and it's collectible. That's sort of, that's flown off the shelves, Christoph. So that's almost you know, pretty much disappeared, which is great news for you, maybe in the Swiss market uh, and, and, and elsewhere. But tell us, when you sort of look back and looking ahead, uh, what else is being cooked up that you can at least disclose from the world of uh, Zeit Magazine's empire? Uh, well, thank you so much. I mean, for us at, at the team, it's always a sort of a fun way of reviewing of what we've done in the last past 12 months or so and put it together into this uh, beautifully printed matter. Um, mm. And, uh, well, we're always thinking about new formats and new maybe spin-offs, uh, titles, new new ideas for next year. And, um, uh, I probably cannot disclose anything like in detail, but you know, there's, there will be something coming up um, in, the, in the following months. Um, but right now in, 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 in Germany, in the, these days, we're, we're, we're sort of mourning uh, one of my sort of favorite intellectuals who died um, at the end of the week, uh, Hans Magnus Enzensberger, who's like the, one of the leading intellectuals in Germany. And He's such a rare breed uh, when it comes to German intellectuals because he was an optimist all his way, all his life. And um, so the, the, I was just talking to Hans Ulrich Oprist, you know, the director of Serpentine Gallery this morning, and we, uh, him being Swiss, me being German, we talked about the legacy of, of an intellectual, of a writer and, and publisher like Hans Magnus, uh, and agreed that, that we, you know, have to sort of live up his spirit always keep going and always being optimistic no matter you know what happens in the world and what would he have made of uh, this week's cover because your cover uh, it's a great topic because it's yeah it's focused on on the power of patience uh, yeah. and uh, and and i think it's 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 at such an interesting time because uh, you, know, you and i have talked about you know what happened to forgiveness and this is you know very much i think related uh, to that as well so what what prompted it uh and uh and and certainly what's the reception been certainly since it hit newsstand on thursday yeah i mean as we're heading into advent uh, uh time and, and we thought about like uh, how about uh, you know covering the topic of patience where well, we live in times where technology seems to force us all to sort of act quickly and um, and be on time and, and, and rush into things a lot. And uh, Sabine Rückert, who's the uh, deputy editor of Zeit and also a famous podcaster in Germany, wrote a beautiful essay about the power of patience and that sometimes in life you just need to wait and, and lean back and sit and just reflect on uh, what's happening and uh, not being, you know, sort of pushing yourself into actions that might not be uh, sustainable and you know generally speaking when we look at the world today I was just following the news from China with all the, the problems with COVID at the moment uh, sometimes in, in, in countries who, who sort of run in democracies we kind of moan, we kind of you know uh, um, talk about the fact that we're so slow uh, democracies are slow much slower than dictatorships but um, 
sort of the news from China really with their strategy going definitely wrong uh, handling COVID uh, is also a sign of sometimes, you know, democracies are slow, slower than dictatorships, but for a good reason. Indeed. Um, speaking of uh, of of, well, of democracies, uh, and and maybe someone, by, well, at least by some, uh, feel that she's uh, she's missed on, on the European stage. Uh, others were happy to see her go. But coming week, we'll have uh, a documentary uh, being released uh, about uh, the former Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, and and really, this is this past week has been one of the first times that we've. Uh, really ha- seen her quoted uh, that she's been out in in the press uh, yeah. so just this lead into this documentary what's the uh, what's the feeling Christoph well the, the interesting fact that the, the documentary that's now out in in, in German uh, movie theaters is sort of more has sort of a more international focus on her and as we're quite aware that she's very still very popular I guess uh, uh, globally we're in Germany in in the last couple of weeks. There's been a big debate about her legacy when it comes to Russia and the Ukraine war. And um, and she really seems to um, have, a, you know, problems with, you know, realizing that her strategy sort of towards Russia, towards Vladimir Putin was too friendly and too passive in many ways. And that the situation in Germany, at least, um, you know, since the war started, uh, it also, you know, leads back to her legacy, and I think she, she seems to be quite surprised uh, by that sort of account. And uh, uh, she gave a, a, a sort of an in-depth interview in Spiegel magazine. She talked to a reporter, Alexander Ozang, who's been covering her for many years, and um, she didn't even, you know, she didn't want to say sorry about her politics when it came to Russia. Uh, I think she's still waiting, uh, probably uh, hoping for the power of patience. <laughs> in a very own way of, of how people will actually look at her legacy uh, when it comes to Russia in the following years. Indeed. And just quickly, uh, before we go, uh, patience uh, around uh, the Deutsche Mannschaft. Uh, so oh, no, <laughs> what, what, no, what's going to happen this evening? <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone in Germany tonight you know, is waiting for the German team to be kicked out, to be honest. Uh, Spain seems to be the much better team they're playing uh, uh, tonight. And if Germany loses, the German team loses tonight, they're all going to be out of the tournament. Um, on the other hand, in Germany, when it comes to this World Cup, I mean, the the TV, the television uh, rates are down. People are complaining about Qatar and why are we going there? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a mess, really, with this World Cup. So, you know, it's, it, if the team's out, it's gonna, they're going to be out. And, uh, we'll see what happens with the World Cup. I mean, I saw France play last night, um, and Mape really showing his, his strength, and I think they're, they're my favorite team at the moment. Very good. Christopher, I mean, hopefully we'll speak uh, before uh, Christmas uh, and have a little bit of a, of a catch-up uh, with you, but that was uh, Christopher Ament, uh, Zeit Magazine's uh, editorial director for us in Berlin. Very quickly, uh, Emily, Germany, uh, although they make it through, are you going for Spain this evening? Um, I am rooting for Spain, but I, yeah, it would be great to see Germany as well. But yeah, Spain will take it.
Christoph, I mean, you're, you're already not, you weren't German bashing, but. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm expecting the German, Germans to come back like Argentina yesterday. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see how this uh, unfolds. Emma Nelson, very quickly, uh, a view on this. Uh, has your son built a stadium in the, in the living room yet? No, he hasn't. It's been, we've been surprisingly not interested in it. I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not really that bothered about that. And I'm quite pleased. Is that a dreadful thing to say? <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. Emma Nelson in, uh, in London. Thanks very much. Also to Emily. So uh, Christoph Munger, also Andrew Tuck uh, and Guy Delaney and Christoph Ahmed up in Berlin. Our producers today, Desiree Bandley, and also Emma Nelson, our studio manager uh, in Zurich, also Desi. Uh, and Christy O'Grady has been looking after the audio sound, booking of guests and lines out of London. I'm Tyler Blay. We're back next week. Uh, of course, it's going to be our Christmas market here in Zurich. Uh, you'll be with us then. Thanks very much. Have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.